Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome. This is episode two of The Unthinkable. As we get started, a warning. You may find this podcast confronting. It contains graphic descriptions. You'll hear about a subject most of us find hard even to contemplate, let alone speak of. My full name is Ren Sarah Thunderstorm Arcus. No one ever prepares you for what it might feel like to, when you, to walk out of the hospital without a baby. And that's a moment now that I still have real hard time remembering and dealing with. If you haven't heard the story of Kate and Sam's daughter, Ren, please go back and listen to episode one, The Thunderstorm. I'm Susie Ferguson, and this is The Unthinkable. Kate's pregnant for the second time, and you'll hear more about how they're coping with preparing for a baby after their first child, Ren, died. Yeah, the eyes and the nose exactly like Sam and sometimes when Sam's asleep I'll just sit there and watch her because it just it just reminds me so much it's like watching her no one prepares you to leave hospital after giving birth without a child and babies don't die not in this day and age I remember saying that to my husband in 2013 when we heard for the first time that friends had lost their daughter when she was three months old She was to be the first of many. Since then, four more couples we know, in my home city of Wellington alone, had the unthinkable happen and their baby die. That's five families in five years. It seemed unbelievable, especially these days. When I started working on this series, I began telling more people what it was about. As I did... More often than I'd anticipated, there would be a pause, sometimes a twitch in their face, and then they would tell me their story. There's the colleague whose stillborn son's name is engraved on the inside of his wedding ring. Another who lost twins over a decade ago. My friend whose mother lost a child ten months before she was born. These are confronting and hard conversations and brought home to me that this is all around us, but it's unspoken and lives in the shadows. One of my friends whose baby died is my colleague at RNZ, Kate Gudsell, and we're going to hear from her husband, Sam Arcus, about his memories of their daughter Wren's birth and death and how he and other dads coped with the loss of a child and why they've spoken to me about this. There wasn't a lot of support for men, which is totally true. When Ren, when Ren died, when that happened, all the kind of 
official support networks were really and unofficial were really about how was I doing and not really how was how was Sam doing and so I think that if this could help other men then I think that and you know and and women obviously I think that 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 was the kind of motivation for for me to do it. Wren was born during a thunderstorm while in labour, Kate had to be taken by ambulance from the birthing units at Kenipuru Community Hospital in Porirua to the main hospital in Wellington after her midwives were worried about Wren's heartbeat. But Sam had a different experience. The midwife turns and goes, oh, you're going to have it in Wellington. You should put all your stuff in the car and go to Wellington. And I was like, can I just leave it here? And she's like, no, you won't be coming back here. Yeah, I was going to say, so you, you then... Kate, you're put in the ambulance, yeah. and you don't get to go with her. No, and I was, I was absolutely distraught. Like, I didn't know what what the hell was going on, and we hadn't, I hadn't told anyone that Kate was going into labour because we didn't want anyone else in the delivery room or buzzing about. So, um, that must have been the longest car ride. It of was your absolutely life. horrible. Like I've. I watched the ambulance go and I started driving down and I got down to the intersection and I grabbed my phone and I called my brother, cried on the phone and was like, something's wrong with Kate. They're rushing her and the baby to the hospital now. He told me, hang up and drive to the hospital. And I just drove and screamed and cried. And, you know, I grew up in a religious family and I just remember like screaming and praying the whole way and I don't follow a religion now and I just remember like you know you make every bargain you can you know I just wanted Kate to be all right and the fear was that Kate wasn't going to be all right and the baby wasn't going to be all right and without those two I wouldn't have anything and it was just horrible and then I got to the hospital like I parked in the underground park and there was a phone that says by the elevator like if you're having a baby press this button now and I like press the button and I was just so out of it and I remember just screaming down the phone my wife's having a baby she's been rushed here what do I do and they're like just come up and I'd beat them to the hospital so I was just sitting there in this room waiting for this ambulance to turn up and it was it was just the most surreal experience ever yeah sometimes I like I actually was the first time I heard you talk about it sometimes I think about what it must have felt like for Sam he fumbled his way into the delivery suite I was a wreck during the labour you know and when stuff was going wrong out at Kinaparu I said to myself, oh, you've just got to be strong now for Kate. So I took any opportunity when Kate wasn't in the room to absolutely lose it. So I was like a blubbering mess when I was trying to talk to the charge nurse about who I was and what I was doing. And they seemed to figure it out and they put me in the room that Kate was going to turn up to. And then I remember just sitting there and hearing Kate come and, like, you know, calm yourself, centre yourself, wipe away your tears, everything's fine, you're in a hospital. After Wren's birth, they're alone, and Sam felt helpless. That moment there is the first time I've ever seen Kate so vulnerable and 
snaps a moment now that I still have real hard time remembering and dealing with because Kate's this beautiful, strong woman. She can give as good as she gets. You know, she's a battler. And seeing her so broken and knowing that there's nothing I can do to make this pain go away and there's nothing I can do to make it not have happened. All I can do is hold her. Their daughter, Wren, lived for six days. She was starved of oxygen during birth and Kate and Sam made the heartbreaking decision to switch off her life support. In the last moments of Wren's life, she was held close and cuddled by her family as they said goodbye. When I saw my dad... When I saw my dad hold... hold Wren... It hurt so much because he was holding his granddaughter that I had given him. And I was like looking at him and I was like, Dad, this is my daughter. And that's when it hit that she was mine. And that's when it hit that I was a dad is when I saw my dad hold her. And I can't, like, we've got a photo of it. I can't look at that photo because it's the most heartbreaking thing is to see my dad is an amazing man hold my daughter, who I know that he absolutely loved. And and I know now that he's, his heart has been broken by this as well. Sam and Kate became parents, but were stunned without a child to take home from the hospital. It's the greatest experience of my life was holding her. The, the hardest experience, and it's like, I like try so hard to remember what that feels like, you know? Like I actively, I don't ever want to forget that feeling and sometimes I feel that feeling going away and that's, it's like another loss is, I just want to feel that. I remember getting the phone call telling me Wren had died. It was on my 10th wedding anniversary. I was then asked to ring round some other people to help get the word out. Most of that afternoon was spent in tears. When my husband and I went out for dinner that evening to celebrate our decade, we hardly spoke, just looking at each other, holding hands the conversation always looping back to Kate, Sam and Wren. It was especially hard too, because within the space of a month, lightning struck twice. Two friends in Wellington had lost babies. Kate and Sam were the second. The first was another colleague, Lucy Emson, and her husband, Carl. We'll hear their story shortly. But these two tragedies, plus three others that I knew of, got me wondering. I mean, it's like Kate said. Really? How often do babies die? Recent statistics show that almost one baby in every 250 born alive dies. That's one every day of the working week. I sat down with Vicky Culling, who's a former chair of SANS, 
the charity in New Zealand that supports families that have experienced the death of a baby. I often say her little life changed my big life forever. In 1998, Vicky was 10 days overdue when her first daughter, Aster, was stillborn. For bereaved parents, it, there's never a normal life again. There are, it's a new normal we talk Vicky about. Vicky walked me through the stats. So in 2016, we had 609 babies that died from 20 weeks gestation through to 28 days after birth. Uh, 148 termination of pregnancy, that's for fetal abnormality or um, you know, lethal abnormality. Early neonatal death from uh, birth to seven days old, 121, and then from eight days to a month old is 30, so 609 families. And just looking at the other statistics that you've got on this sheet from the previous decade... 701, 730, 708. The lowest number you've got there is 2015, 578. These are thousands and thousands of families. Mm. And then you've still got the babies that die up to a year old. So if we look at 10 years' worth of data, there were 6,602 perinatal-related mortalities from 20 weeks gestation through to 28 days after birth. And when you think about some things that we talk about in terms of deaths um, that we hear about a lot, you know, we hear a lot about the number of people killed on the roads, the road toll. We hear uh, in the news about people who are murdered, uh, for example. Um, gosh, we like, we like thinking about these, some of these things a lot on the news, don't we? But how do how does some of these numbers stack up to some of those kinds of statistics? For that same 10-year period, so there were 6,602 babies, there were 3,330 deaths on our New Zealand roads. And then for um, homicides, there were 686 people murdered. And it's not about comparing those stats and saying one is worse than the other. Oh my gosh, that's terrible. It's when I talk about comparing the statistics, I'm talking about how much do we know about the 3,330 deaths on our roads? How much do we know about the murders? How much do we know about breast cancer, Six around six to 700 deaths a year? How much do we know about prostate cancer? Again, 600 deaths a year. And how much do we know about the number of babies that die, which, broadly speaking, on the data it's double the road toll. It's double the number of people who've been killed on the roads, mm. as tragic as that is. Yeah. And so that that's just around awareness raising. And then I look at, well, well, we know how many people die on the roads. What's our response to that as a society? What's our government response to that? And we have a national land transport program. We spend millions, millions on road, road safety promotion and we have a community road safety fund, as we should. Absolutely, we want to get those numbers down. We don't want people dying on our roads. And then when um, if people are murdered, we have victim support who are funded through justice. And then if we look at those babies, 6,602, how much do we know? And then how do we care for those families? What are we doing for those families? And my experience is that we're not doing well at all. And go back a few generations to the beginning of the last century and the rate in New Zealand was 107 deaths per thousand at its peak. 
That about fits with my great-grandmother, who had 11 children, but one died. These are the stats, but behind each one is a family, a story. These are people's lives. My friend Lucy Emson and her husband Carl's daughter Harriet was also starved of oxygen during a fast labour. Harriet lived for just 36 hours. When the unthinkable happened to them, Carl and Lucy already had a child, another daughter, Clara, and you'll hear her as she came in and out of the room while we talked. Um, it was, I don't know, it was also like... As Lucy was recovering from Harriet's birth, Carl had the majority of the conversations with nurses and doctors and quickly sensed what was happening. The fear of upsetting us was almost more paramount to them than telling us what was actually happening. The nurses in NICU were amazing. Um, and that's when I said like, I'd worked this out, I, that's where I'd worked it out from. I'd talked to them during the day. And they were honest and they were open and they were caring. Harriet's condition deteriorated in a matter of hours. And I asked them about the possibility of donation um, and was told no, which was another hard moment. It's not something they do with infants. So organ donation at that point is not really an option. Wow, that's quite, um, that's quite a situation to find yourself in when you're 12 hours after having your baby that you're having those kind of conversations. That's, that's kind of extraordinary to find yourself there, I guess. Yeah, we bet. <laughs> like Kate and Sam, Carl and Lucy also had to make the decision to turn off the life support. The last thing they took away was the respirator. And I think both of us thought that was going to be really quick. So we thought once they took that out, we'd have minutes. Um, so no one else was there, and we just sat with Harriet. She um, was lying on me. And there was this big gasp, and it was probably every 10 minutes be this big gasp as she took a breath and that went on that was ages eh? it was a couple of hours in the end I think. and we just sat there passing her back and forwards and holding her and at one point you had a little sleep with her on your chest in the armchair which was nice yeah and at about six o'clock at night we were kind of going well this is great but we're still sat here in the NICU um can we go home? What can we do? Do you mean, could you take her home? Yeah. We know what's happening. Do we need to be here? Like, we could be somewhere more comfortable or whatever. And they kind of went, well, yeah, let's explore that option. And, and there were phone calls. There were phone going calls, on in the yeah. Between <laughs> doctors and... Nurses. In um, departments. And and just when we thought we were going to be leaving the NICU with a baby, sick, obviously, um, and it wasn't going to be a long-term thing, she'd actually filled her nappy up, which was funny. So we had to change her nappy, which was 
a surreal experience and we put her back and this thing in the back of my head went, she hasn't gasped for a while. And she passed away. So you were yeah, you were holding her? Carl's a teacher and took a couple of weeks off work. So the first week off was um, bereavement leave. The second week off was put down as sick leave because it's the only type of leave we have other than um, unpaid. And I stupidly went, okay, well, I'll go back to work. Two weeks after Harriet's death, Eric's birth and and wasn't ready for it. Had massive anxiety around a lot of things, um, and wasn't prepared for I don't know anything really, but thought I was okay. Lucy and Carl put a few pictures of Harriet up on social media. They figured they would have done if she was alive. And they had support from Lucy's GP who visited, but they were struggling to find a counsellor. The list they were given was out of date and felt like they were being passed from pillar to post, over and over having to tell strangers the story that their baby daughter had died. We went on the Thursday and had a massive anxiety attack at school. And I ended up going to my GP. Is that something that you've had before or, or was this the, it just totally came out of the blue? Yeah, it was a first for me. And I studied psychology at university, so I knew what was happening. It didn't help at all. And yeah, just, it wasn't, it was a terrible experience to go through. Carl felt a lot of the help was geared towards a woman who'd lost a child, with less emphasis on how the dad might feel. He tried continuing at work, but was overwhelmed. And I then tried to go back for term four. I think I lasted another week before it was just all too much again. And ended up back at the GP and very, very nearly walked away from teaching completely. Why did you consider walking away from it? Because I considered walking away from everything. (laughs) So I ended up very depressed and struggling a lot. I didn't have any more leave to use and it was either a case of quit or um, take the rest of the term off or go back and yet again the deputy principal sat down with me and said look this isn't you, this isn't where you are and she's the only reason I stayed teaching and yeah I'm very sure that without that conversation I ended up having with her I wouldn't still be at school. I don't mean this to sound trite, but were you ever able to kind of... It's going to sound like a stupid question. Why were you depressed? Because your baby died. But, was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but you know, was, was there, I suppose, was part of it the shock? Was there any kind of specifics you could nail down within that, because my baby died, that's why I'm depressed? Yeah, so it's, as you say, it's like, it's the most obvious reason you've ever seen for depression it's my baby died but it's also that this doesn't happen this isn't what happens now babies don't die um that how are you supposed to go while carl's gp was supportive 
and he found comfort in his teaching colleagues and the students at school, it was his older daughter who really made the difference. There's a very real possibility that Clara is the only reason I'm still alive. Yeah. But <laughs> she made it really hard. Because you'd have to go to places where you saw babies. Um, and yeah, like that was already part of our lives, like playgrounds and parks and all of those things and daycare and you couldn't just hide away. Like some things have been okay in those situations, like you go to the park and there's kids playing and, you know, it's kids, we've got a kid, like that's all fine, but then when you'd see, like, the older child with, you know, the parents with the newborn baby, the scenario that would have mirrored what we would have had, um, that's particularly hard. It forces you to keep going into those environments. You can't just shield yourself from... Did you get angry? Did you get jealous? For me, I never got jealous or... Like, it's not Harriet. It wasn't Harriet. They're, they're not Harriet. Um, I just struggled because we should have a second one. It, 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 yeah, it did feel unfair. And there was that, like... why that big why question and there's no there's no reason when we recorded that interview lucy was pregnant with their third child eleanor and they now have a fourth madeline who was born in early 2020 for kate and sam the situation was kind of the opposite their plan had been for Sam to be Ren's main caregiver in the first months, as he'd taken redundancy from his job and had some time before he was set to retrain as an electrician. Kate was to go back to work fairly soon after the birth, and in the next episode of The Unthinkable, you'll hear what it was like for her to step back into the office six weeks after losing Ren. Sam was at home, alone. He felt numb, and in the bleak, dark weeks after Wren's death, he turned to his love of sculpting with metal. I honestly just needed something to fill my day. And when Kate went back to work, I couldn't literally be in this house without her. So I would go sit in my shed and wait for Kate to come home from work. And so I started making this, um, this big steel sign for Wren and I wanted to make something that was like strong and permanent and tangible, I guess. And the idea was to make something out of steel so it would rust and it would change over time. And, and that's one thing that I found really, that I still find really hard is that we never got to watch Ren grow or reach milestones or change and develop. and. I love welding and working with steel and that's hard and hot work and you always burn yourself so it's, there's a bit of pain in there as well. So it was just like, we missed out on so much and just wanted this sign to be in our garden because... And we were planning, I mean we still will actually this spring just have like a little corner in our garden for Ren and that's where the sign's going to go. 
and it's quite a lovely organic sign in some ways and it was to kind of to put it in with the plants and have the plants kind of grow around around it I guess so that she was always there was like a little piece of her in our in our in our garden because it's that's like one thing that's really important to us like really important to me is to never not have Ren in our lives and never not talk about her or she is the girl that made me a father six days changed my life I'll never forget her the time you were making this was a you know was clearly a pretty dark period and I guess this was part of the therapy yeah it was it was like I've always loved doing that thing, doing that sort of sculpture, and it gave me a purpose. And like, apart from my DNA, I didn't help grow <laughs> um, Ren, and I that was that sort of loss feeling of, you know, as a man, you, you you can never create or like life, I guess, and you can't nurture it within you. And I never wanted to create something, and I. And it was hard because when I was doing it, it was like, it was hard. after looking at how beautiful Ren was, is I would never be able to create anything that beautiful. And that I, I found hard was looking at, I was like, this is a sign for Ren, the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. How can anything I do ever create to uh, equate to that or be in memory of that? It was just to spend a lot of time like actively making myself think about her even though it was hard and painful it was therapeutic and helped me get over it and not get over it but learn to live with it months after Ren's birth and death Sam starts his training to be an electrician uh, during smoker we were talking to some of the guys and um, they knew that Kate was pregnant and they're like oh what number is this and I met I whenever someone asks I'm not gonna I'm gonna be honest because I think that's important and I was like oh this will be our second but our um our first daughter passed away and this guy who was like you know he's a tradie he's got tats he's like me and he's like you know from my conversations I had with before he's just like a general bloke and he's like bro you'll never get over it I lost my daughter 18 years ago and I still think about her every day you just got to talk it out and that's the last conversation we we had about it but even even though he lost his daughter 18 years ago and he's subsequently had three kids he says he thinks about her every day and it's very common and while some people would talk about Ren's death others shut it down I've had the simple cliche ones like, oh, she's in a better place and oh, it wasn't meant to be and stuff like oh, that. That annoys me so and much. And that is like, that, oh. that really, because what, the best place for her is with two parents who absolutely wanted her and more what than do you anything mean? Yeah. and loved her more than anything and would, um, and you know, meant to be. And it's like, no, we didn't need this life lesson. We've had plenty <laughs> of absolute shit life lessons. We're pretty skilled up on that. You know, this is just one that we didn't need and didn't want. And it's like, yeah, I just think, I, I just think some people just, like, don't know what to say. And I guess that's, so they say something crap. Sam and his family were already noticing how different parts of society viewed death 
especially when it's a child? I think it's a very Western, um, Western sort of attitude attitude mm. towards grief because like my dad was talking about like the Pacifica woman in his work and the Maori woman in his work they they knew the feeling and they knew the grief and and it was this very in like part of their society is how they grieve and in Western society is you have the funeral you get back to work you do it mm. there's no talking about it there's no like bigger spiritual picture about what you've gone through and how you've changed and and stuff like that and I just I do think it's a very western sort of idea that you internalize everything you don't talk about it you don't talk about the life lost and and Carl also struggled with western society's reaction to his grief yes men there's still that perception out there I suppose that men don't cry um some of my happy memories of Harriet bring on tears, and that's okay. I don't know, I, I suppose that perception is breaking down, and our society is changing over time. I don't know, the, the kids were amazing. They they were probably the easiest to talk to, and the most understanding, and the most amazing reactions to share, um, because they got it. And that innocence that they have, and that just genuine curiosity and wanting to know shined through and and made it just a normal let's talk rather than awkward and I don't know what I should say so what about I'm just going to say nothing or I'm going to run away or emotionally are are, are are men allowed to show this you know are you, have you kind of felt that it's okay you know it's that it's okay to feel like this, that it's okay to to have had a, you know, a, a, a reaction to a massive happening in your life? I don't care. <laughs> um, one thing Harriet's done for me is put things in perspective. And actually, if you've got a problem with it, it's your problem. So how do you pick up the pieces of your life? Grief counselling, for me, really helped. And accepting, not accepting, but just understanding that, like, you know, life is hard and, like, in general, the world is shit. And, uh, like, you've... No, like, but, yeah, like, yeah. it's like, you know, you've got to... And then you've got to... And, le- and also letting yourself... Learning to let yourself be happy and laugh And be sad as well. Yeah. And be sad and be vulnerable. In the aftermath of the death of their firstborn child, Sam and Kate are having another baby. And as the number of babies that die each year in New Zealand is twice the number of people killed on the roads, we'll hear how other women have found their way through the grief. Life has puddles in its path and you just climb out of them by taking comfort in traditions and rituals. Everything about Māori culture is about connecting to people who have passed away. And how you view it as the decades roll by. She said, my baby died a long, long, long time ago too, and it hurts. And I thought, this is emotion dug deep. She just held my hand and knew. That's next time on The Unthinkable.
The Unthinkable is a podcast series by RNZ. It's available on the RNZ website in the podcasts and series section and on all the podcasting apps, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify and iHeartRadio. Please subscribe and rate us. The Unthinkable was written and presented by me, Susie Ferguson, and produced by Liz Garton. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin. It was engineered by William Saunders. My thanks to Kate Gudsell, Sam Arcus, Lucy and Carl Emson, and Vicky Culling for this episode. Kakiteano. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.